Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series at the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome to this very special episode of FEPS Talks. Uh, today, our guest is Jenny Anderson, an economic historian, professor in history of ideas and science, uh, research professor at CNRS, uh, affiliated with the Centre d'études européennes and Compare at Sciences Po in Paris. Uh, today, connected with University of Uppsala, but previously also affiliated to European University Institute in Florence and Center for European Studies at Harvard, very known to many of you as the author of social democratic history, especially when it comes to social democratic party in uh, Sweden and social democratic parties in Scandinavia. Very, very, very many thanks for connecting with us in such a heated political period. Thank you. Jenny, uh, we've asked you today uh, because there have been many things happening, especially in Sweden, when it comes to Social Democratic Party and when it comes to Social Democratic government. Um, before we, however, connect with what's hitting the headlines of the news uh, today, perhaps uh, you would be uh, so inclined as to tell us how this last decade came about. Uh, Stefan Löwen, the uh, Prime Minister, Uh, the chair of the Social Democratic Party, after what has been a transition period following Goran Persson and then with Mona Salin and Hakan Juholt. So how can we assess what's happening from this longer term decade kind of uh, perspective? Um, yeah, that's a really good good question. Well, I think that the big picture, the Swedish Social Democrats, like all Social Democrats across Europe, are really struggling what I would call the legacies or the costs of the third way, so the kind of modernization project that was put in place in the UK by Tony Blair and in Sweden by Lydia Persson. And maybe we should say that the sort of top candidate of leadership is Magdalena Andersson, who is also the closest aide to Joran Persson, so she comes very much from that period. And we can say a lot about those things, but they reposition social democracy in the in the center ground. And I think in the long-term perspective, one would have to stress that much of that way reforms were, were sort of successful in the short-term perspective, but they had a cost over the long term. And so we've seen crises and the erosion of electoral numbers and membership and, and all of these things that we know very well, uh, really for all social democratic parties. And the Swedes are not, I would insist, an exception. So maybe our crisis is less devastating in terms of electoral numbers than in other social democrat parties. It's true that Swedish social democracy still is hopefully around 20% or so, we're not quite sure. But comparatively speaking, this is better, of course, than, for instance, the Dutch situation or perhaps even the French. But it doesn't mean that we're not in a similar situation. I would really say I think we're in exactly the same situation as, for instance, the German social democrats. And I think it has a lot to do with the, the way that social democratic parties are really struggling to break out, particularly of the macroeconomic framework of the 90s and 2000. And this cripples their ability to think in innovative ways about social reform politics. And it also stops them in important ways from, from providing alternatives to the success story of the of the far right. So I guess that's kind of where we are at the moment. Now, in terms of Levin, who has indeed been a leader of the party during a, a long decade, and I can see that he would want to step down and maybe return to calmer circumstances. But Levin is a professional social democrat politician. He came from the trade union movement. 
It's often said of him that he's a trade unionist. So one of the things I, I think I would like to add is that he came from the Metal Workers Union and the Metal Workers Union Metal is not any trade union. It's really the, the leader trade union that sets the mark, as we say in Swedish. And it's also the trade union that has um, unionized workers that throughout the post-war period were those that actually took the sort of better part of the Swedish model in the sense that they were at the top of the wage league. And so there was a lot of frustration in Metal with public worker unions. And so Stefan Levin, trade unionist as he is, has always been sort of one of the hawks of the Swedish model. So he really is to be identified, I think, with the kind with the workers that that, that actually took most of the gains of the so-called Swedish model. I'm happy to explain that further if, if you like. Now, he came to power in, in, I guess, 2012, after a period that had been extremely turbulent. And so there was a, a very rapid set of successions in the party from Passion and then Mona Salim, who was very innovative in terms of, of introducing issues of diversity and multiculturalism, but who was very traditionalist in economic policy, very market-oriented. And then there was a very rapid turn and a really short interval with this, this party leader that many people have forgotten called Håkan Jürholt. And Håkan Jürholt was a brief left turn in the party. And it was, a, I think, symbolically extremely important, but it was an organizational failure. And so I think that Levine's support came to a large extent from this kind of debacle, the way that the UHOP period was infused with a lot of optimism from important strands in the party that would have liked to see a turn to the left, but was also extremely painful for the more professionalized parts of the party that really draw the conclusion that the, that the left was a, a bunch of crazy people who would never be able to actually run a party organizational structure. And so Levin became a, a really holding together kind of, of leader. And that is also, I guess, what he has done really well during these 10 years. He hasn't really changed much in terms of party politics or even reform politics. He's been, a, a, I'd say, a pretty much traditionalist continuation in many ways of the other passion. But of course, uh, his time as the party leader and also as the prime minister has been a very challenging time. Uh, two big crises uh, and changes of uh, the context when it comes to Sweden, right? I mean, the political party system has evolved a lot in the last 10 years. That's not the same party system uh, that uh, was inherited after Persian or during the times of Mona Salim and Hakan Yuhov. No, that's true. And he's been in a really difficult situation, as we saw also by the, the governmental crisis of this summer and a situation of or what is really a, a minority uh, government which uh, cannot be sure, for instance, of the budgetary process, which has been one of the, the key concerns. Yeah, so one of the key changes in the Swedish electoral landscape is the, the growth of the Sweden Democrats, which is today the third or possibly the second, but the third biggest party. So that's one of the key changes. And the other change, I guess, is that has to do with changes on the on the right wing side of the political uh, landscape and a new set of possible alliances. I'm a little hesitant to say how, how sure we are of this, but I guess one of the key questions for the future coming election and also for the governmental crisis that we had this summer is how many and exactly which of the of the liberal right parties would actually go into a governmental coalition with the Sweden Democrats. So that, of course, has been the major parameter of, of the entire uh, leadership period of, of Stefan Levin. And, and in fairness, no other social democrat leader has really been faced with that situation. Let's talk for a moment about, indeed, this minority government, because I think that not for everyone across uh, Europe, it is very clear 
how this uh, government came uh, to stand and why the crisis of the summer occurred. So if you could say uh, perhaps a few words uh, so that we could also feel the tensions that have been there for much longer than uh, when it hit the headlines, of course. Yeah, so in the last election in 2018, there was no clear social democrat majority and there was no clear majority with either of the traditional partners. So. You know, as the historian in me, I want to say that Swedish social democracy has never actually been in a clear hegemony or dominance over the party landscape. So this is a party that has a really long history of alliances. And traditionally, the partners of alliance in the post-war period were the agrarians of the center party, which were a social liberal party. Now, today, the agrarian center party is more of a neoliberal party. They, they have very firm and, and rather dogmatic markets, uh, friendly stances. And the other traditional allies during the Passion era were the Greens, Miljöpartiet. Miljöpartiet is also a difficult kind of bedfellow for social democracy because they're not clearly um, on issues of welfare policy, for instance, they're not clearly left and they're oftentimes actually rather market-friendly or they're pro-choice, as it were. And then, of course, one of, paradoxically, one of the, of the not-close allies of social democracy is the left party, so the former communists. And so long story in Swedish political history about the separation, of course, of social democracy and the early communists. And so one of the things that has really shaken the Swedish political landscape since 2018 and since the, the breakup of what we used to call the alliance, which is an alliance of the, of the right liberal parties, has been that this question of allies and who to govern with has been really up in the air. And so the only choice after 2018, uh, well, the only choice, I'll come back to that in a second, uh, was a, a rather fragile governmental alliance between social democracy, the Centre Party and the Greens. And so this is a, a weak alliance. And it came about in what was really, I think, a, an almost blackmail kind of situation where the only option in order to get support for the budget process for Libyan was to accept something that then came to be known as the January Treaty or the January Deal. And the January Deal is kind of comparable to, to the Große Koalition in Germany, and I think it has had much of the same um, effect. But so the, the, the kind of unfortunate effect of the January deal was that the center party were able to impose an influence that really outstretched by far their parliamentary mandate, because they were crucial for the stability of, of the government and the option would have been a new election and the risk of the new election would have been an election around the Swedish Democrats or the far right. And I think Levin really, really put almost all of his political capital at trying to avoid this at all costs. And so the outcome of that was the January uh, Treaty. So the January Treaty included then on the request of the Centre Party, a few things that have proven to be very painful for social democracy. So one of them was the privatization of uh, labor services, employment services, and changes in labor law, which in fact came very close to, to pushing a governmental crisis already in 2017. And another thing had to do with what, what triggered the governmental crisis of this summer, which was a, an end to, to rent control, which is also a, a big big issue in Sweden. So those two things have been very, very difficult. And there have been also questions of taxation, for instance, the liberalization of taxation, which 
Sweden already has a very liberal tax system, so this was kind of a last, last straw, I think, for many social democrats view this as a very painful, painful agreement, the January deal. What is also important in the context of the January deal was that the center party pushed an agreement by which social democracy would not negotiate with the left party. And so the, uh, the kind of background principle of the January deal was we will do this and we will keep the Sweden Democrats outside of established political battle. We will shame them. We will make sure that they can enter into mainstream Swedish politics. But we will do the same to the left party. So the centre party pushed through uh, an end to our negotiations with, with the with the Venstre party, with the Swedish left. And this, I think, was a strategic error retrospectively. Uh, because it means now that the relationship with, with the left party, which has partly a shared history with social democracy and, and which in, in many ways also stands for values that are quite close to social democracy, in particular on some of the points that are very contested now within the social democratic party, was basically put out of business of parliamentary politics by Lvia. Um, and so that left very hurt feelings and the left party in fact since the governmental crisis of this summer has done quite well so at the moment it looks like they will be very strong in the next election and it's not a comparable situation for the center party so in many ways this became a very complex situation and it really underscores that in an era of minority parliamentarism, which is, is true not only for Sweden, but actually all over the Western world, alliances are extremely fragile. And it means that it becomes extremely difficult to do reformist politics, which necessarily, I think, have to be thought over the long term. I think you are absolutely uh, right about that. Uh, also looking at... Uh you know, just purely externally at the time of COVID and the governing through the COVID, because it was more than just crisis management in case of Sweden, I would say. It was really trying to govern despite the circumstances. And, and you really see the effort by every single press release coming out with this policy is supported by all three parties or this policy is really supported by two parties so you really almost can sense this battle behind every single uh, political movement uh, that was done in this period and uh, talking about that because i think uh, whole europe is leaving uh, through uh, uh, the fear of the next wave what will it do to economy how we go about recovery uh, what's the picture in Sweden just before we move to the discussion on the crisis, on the governmental crisis in itself? Because Stefan Löfven has been beneficiary of uh, relatively good uh, opinions when it comes to political uh, surveys and opinion polls uh, uh, during the times of COVID. Uh, um, he was considered a stable prime minister, uh, being able to govern through. You've mentioned the budgetary issues. Uh, Sweden went for uh, very uh, many adjustments, in fact. Uh, um, so how is the situation today? Uh, because uh, I would probably dare saying that uh, Sweden went through the crisis also still as a country that had still a very strong state and state institutions. So it played uh, quite differently than uh, elsewhere in Europe, right? Yes, maybe. I um, personally think that maybe we need to let the jury be out for a while before <laughs> we know this. But, but I mean, clearly COVID shifted some of the principles of microeconomic policy. So we, we've spent it, we've spent uh, during the COVID crisis. And so, yeah, that would indicate a return to a sort of more active welfare state and, and at least shaking up some of the sort of holy cows 
of budget policy. And I think many of us hope that that would now turn out to be applicable to areas that are not immediately pandemic and that perhaps are related to spending in other welfare areas because there are still a lot of things that we would arguably need to spend on. I mean, I think it should be remembered also that Sweden, before the pandemic, had a surplus, a lot of municipalities and regions in Sweden due to the strict budgetary rules were actually running surpluses. And so there there were funds, but the funds were not being spent. And that was a, a debate that I think social democracy really did not want to have. And at least personally, I think that uh, a budgetary surplus that is not actually used for taxpayers' benefits is as much a problem as a, as a deficit. So there, there's a, a sort of silent conversation, I think, that needs to be had with the next party leader about the principles of macroeconomic policy. But it's clear that, that COVID and the pandemic released massive funds for welfare spending. And, you know, I guess we will have to see what happens as the pandemic filters out, if it does or not. I'm not sure that it really signals a kind of return to a strong welfare state, because I think it matters what we spend things on. And I'm not sure that emergency spending in times of COVID is exactly the same thing as returning to a more long-term, stable refinancing of essential welfare services, which is what I think would be necessary. This issue concerns a much larger issue, which has to do with with privatization and marketization in the welfare state, but I'll I'll maybe not say so many more things about that, because I wanted to return to this this question of stability and so on, and the popularity of Levine. So Sweden has, has had a comparably successful pandemic time. Economically speaking, the Swedish economy is, is not in the same pitfall as, as, for instance, what the American economy or, or parts of the European economy. And I think to many Swedes, life in the pandemic has been not normal, but a new kind of normal. So people working from home, but actually finding that quite relaxed and quite pleasant. We have not had to endure the sort of really painful lock-ins as in other European countries. So we've, we've been lucky that way and we have nature. We can always go out and a lot of people have sort of seen this as a prolonged period of less intense working life. Um, the pandemic, nevertheless, has had a huge toll. So we have had a lot of deaths in Sweden compared to the to our Nordic neighbors. Levin has been very lucky because we have a political structure which has put almost all the responsibility for the crisis management on an independent board known as the Public Health Authority. And I think for a prime minister in a very fragile minority government with an unruly coalition faced with a constant threat of governmental crisis, this was really an almost ideal situation. And he has successfully navigated the pandemic, also because a lot of the critical questions were not asked at Levine, but at the sort of experts of the public health movement. That uh, changes a lot the picture we may have had and talking about the picture we may have had, of course, from the European perspective, what you get uh, in the general stream of news is uh, governmental crisis in uh, Sweden, first time uh, confidence vote, uh, historical thing, confidence vote. Uh, we see all the colleagues uh, from the Social Democratic Party standing firmly uh, behind the Prime Minister and behind the leader. Um, then uh, we see uh, the lost confidence vote, but nevertheless the agreement for the Prime Minister to stay on and be the one to take care of the government. And then sort of uh, six weeks later, we see the resignation of the Prime Minister. Forgive me for being uh, perhaps... Uh, 
um, provocative here, but it sounds all very confusing for external viewer. Uh, could you perhaps uh, let us through this process that I imagine for the party and uh, for everyone involved has been incredibly difficult and challenging as well? I think politics are confusing. I think that we have seen these kind of periods in other European countries. I mean, we had, I forget how long, but I mean, in the Netherlands and in Belgium, we've had really long periods, right, of political stalemate. And this situation really resembles those, those situations, I think, quite closely. So I would say that, sure, this is a Swedish thing happening, but it's actually very close to what we've seen in the European landscape. And it's an, it's, it's an illustration of the fact that a kind of stable left-right divide of the post-war period, uh, organized around, you know, labor interests, capital interests, a strong state, a smaller state, that period is gone. And we live in a very long period of very fragile minorities. And I think that all social democratic parties need to think extremely carefully at this. And I'm sometimes concerned that I think that the, the sort of mental concentration or mental space to do that is not really present uh, because of the concern of, of crisis management. Um, how can I explain the situation well? So what happened was that the, the left party then feeling, feeling bad about themselves, about being excluded from the political process despite being a democratic party and having backed political democracy for at least the, the very majority of their political history, which one cannot say from Sweden Democrats, they were understandably insulted by be, being treated as the pariahs of Swedish politics. They have themselves a young and very dynamic and very atypical uh, leader, uh, Mushida Gustav is of, of immigrant origin, a young woman, and she's clearly very skilled and very able, and I think Vivian completely underestimated her. And he probably underestimated what the left party might do, because it's, you know, what the left party said when they pulled the trigger was, we've given you two issues on which we would be prepared to, to file the government. And the first one was the changes in labor law and the privatization of the labor employment of the employment office. And the second was one was rent control. And I'm, I'm going to give them right on that. This did not come out of the blue. This was quite, quite clearly out there uh, that those were the two issues which were sort of the point of no return for them. And I, I think also actually inside of social democracy, those two were very symbolic issues uh, in the January deal. So the governmental crisis was definitely triggered by the left party, but it, I mean, it really just exploded the tensions that were already there in the January deal. And then I think that there was no political actor that at this point wanted a new election. So you're, you're quite right, Anya, when you point out that the new election would not have replaced uh, an ordinary election. So it would have been a very election-packed kind of season. And the big fear since 2018, which is also quite comparable to the situation in other European countries, is, of course, well, when will be the election when the Sweden Democrats pull home, you know, not the majority, but when do, when will they pull, pull home the, when will they become the, the, the largest party? When will they be in such a position that that actually throws the entire nature of Swedish politics upside down? That's really what we're waiting for, you know? Um, and so I think that Vivian really did not want to see this happened on his watch, he put a lot of political effort and lost a lot for social democracy in 2018 when he did everything to avoid that scenario. Now the scenario is still here. I don't think we will get rid of it. And we can debate whether the January deal was strategic or not. That's a, a really divisive issue inside of social democracy. But of course, all actors wanted 
to avoid an extracurricular election, which would have become a kind of propaganda show for the for the Sweden Democrats. And uh, uh, in that sense, uh, how to read uh, the now change? Because when we read the statement coming from the Social Democratic Party about uh, why stepping down now, uh, why a different process, uh, it is uh, mostly, if you were to summarize it, to give a fair fighting chance for Social Democrats, to give a fair fighting chance to profile a new prime minister candidate. Um, so what can be expected? I mean, what can be expected? You At the beginning of the conversation, you said, look, uh, there are those uh, very big issues that are at the moment divisive. Now you also mentioned, uh, you know, reform of the labor law, uh, privatization comes back, the issue of the welfare state, what we spend the money on. But also the question of the leadership. At the, uh, when we started, you said, look, uh, there's a fair chance that uh, the policies will just continue. And so looking at the candidates and so on. So without too much of a speculation, what do you think we can expect from the Swedish Social Democrats. I will not consider you've men, you've made so many brilliant comparisons to the you know European uh, scale, but you know that many European Social Democrats look at Sweden still with a lot of jealousy and uh, for inspiration. Um, of course, with elections going now in Germany, the difficult situation in Sweden, there is a ferment among Social Democrats. There is a search of the you know ideas, inspiration. So, what can we expect on these two levels, the programmatic and the leadership one, when it comes to the months to come? I think there is a, a chance of a certain amount of change. I, I'm not, I, I don't really think that it will be uh, major changes, but I, well, I'm not sure actually. I think that the, the moment right now is such that it, there is a definite possibility of policy change, in particular when it comes to economic policy. So, so you know, I think that Levine stepped down probably because this was a really difficult situation for him during, during the summer and he understands that that a social democratic party, which is already fragile in the opinion polls, has to have a unitary front, a uniting leader in order to fight a successful election campaign. And there is um, a significant amount of division within the party. There is a new party association that modeled very much on momentum in Germany or perhaps Podemos, sorry, in the UK or perhaps Podemos in, in Spain, which is called Reformista now, which is very rapidly become uh, a leading association in social democracy, lots of very mediatic leaders. And so th this is shifting the debate. It also makes the deal with the Centre Party more fragile because a left-wing turn in social democracy, of course, would you know make that kind of alliance again more difficult. And now we add to that that the left party has very successfully played the governmental crisis of the summer and is really rising in the opinion polls. So I think that the situation can be summarized kind of as follows. There is a real push inside of the party and the classical social democratic electorate for something like a left-wing turn. I'm not going to say how far or on exactly which issues, but I think economic policy is going to be the main thing. And actually here, there are also sort of theoretical novelties, right? We have this uh, modern monetary theory stuff that has transformed the, the Biden administration's approach to economic policy. So clearly things are going on here. I'm not going to say that I think there will be massive change, but I definitely think that this is going to be a debate. And in all likelihood, that I think that it's quite likely that the only real candidate is going to be the actual finance minister, Magdalena Andersson. And she, I think, is extremely aware of the need to then navigate, on the one hand, some steps to the left, 
on some of the economic policy issues, which, by the way, I actually think that the social credit democrat leadership in the aftermath of the pandemic, but also falling back on what we learned from the financial crisis and the immigration crisis and so on, actually are also starting to re-evaluate, even if it's sort of been a really slow process. So there's that on the one hand. And on the other hand is, of course, how will social democracy be, be able to be a, a governmental alternative in a period of minority parliamentarism that it cannot rule alone, but it will have to structure some kind of alliance. What will be the points of compromise where, for instance, the center party and the left and the Greens could possibly agree? Is that going to be a viable governmental alternative? We don't know that right now. This has been an incredibly insightful conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, we've learned all so much about the situation in Sweden, but also how to read it and also how to look at the discussion about the renewal of social democracy from the different angles, because you are absolutely right that uh, uh, there are many uh, communalities when it comes to the ability to present a program, to govern, to uh, set the coalitions. Um, I think we are looking with a lot of uh, anxiety, but also hopefully excitement at the situation in Sweden. Sweden over 10 years and the leadership of a party is a very long period. It's a lot of legacy um, from the European level. Of course, we remember the uh, social summit in Göteborg recently followed up by the Porto summit. So we also see a lot of legacy that transcended to the European and to the European social democratic level. We wish you all the best for this uh, coming months. And we hope that we will be able to reconnect with you once uh, the, the, the white uh, smoke is out and uh, uh, we uh, can kind of more clearly see uh, how the running path will uh, will look like. Thank you so much for being with us uh, today, for uh, allowing us to be part of the conversation in Sweden. Incredibly important. Uh, Jenny Anderson, professor from Sciansport and from University of Uppsala, was our guest today. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.